This is a Crow's Nest podcast. This episode of Titanic Talkline contains brief discussions of suicides surrounding the fate of Lookout Frederick Fleet. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to the next episode of Titanic Talkline. I am really grateful to everyone to, who's joined, everyone who tuned in the first time. Thank you so much. Uh, once again, I don't want to talk too much because I'm just really excited to get into the interview. So uh, yeah, let's just uh, cut right to it. Here we go. Awesome. Oh my gosh. And immediately in with the chair squeaking. So just because this is a podcast and no one can see you, would you tell everyone your name and maybe a little bit about your Titanic journey just to boot us right into everything, you know, jump right into it. Sure. So uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, my name is Jared Honda. I am actually a uh, just a Titanic fan since childhood, like I imagine is the case for a lot of people. Um, you know, my first experience interacting with the Titanic is actually reading a Magic Treehouse book when I was eight or nine years old called uh, Night on the Titanic. I think I remember that same same book. I don't know if that was the first one that I read, but I, I definitely did end up reading that one. It, it's definitely like at the reading level where a lot of people are kind of introducing themselves to all kinds of different yeah, yeah, things, yeah. whether it's Egypt or the Titanic or some other historical event. I also loved ancient Egypt, yeah. so you're absolutely yeah. right. It's, that's the rabbit hole that I think a lot of people use to get into, yeah. into history, if that's something they end up getting interested in. Um, that does make sense. How old were you? Do, you? do you remember how old you were when you read that book? Um, I must have been eight or nine years old um, okay. at that point. But uh, I mean, better late than never. I'm sure if I would have <laughs> read it sooner than that, I would have gone even more down the Titanic rabbit hole. But uh, mm-hmm. that was my first exposure to it. And I mean, ever since then, it just created this lifelong, you know, uh, love for wanting to learn about not just the Titanic, but history in general. Um, I actually ended up uh, getting a degree in history as well as a degree in political science. Wow. Um, but but I my history one was the fun one was the one that I was really really passionate about. <laughs> right, right. Um, and the, I feel like the Titanic definitely had a big influence in putting me on that trajectory because mm-hmm. you know you just there's something in it for everybody. Um, and you know whether you're eight or nine years old reading your first Magic Treehouse book or you're somebody later on in life, you know there's something always being you know more research that's coming out or more stories you can learn about. It's just something really wonderful, right. and that's been my my experience. You said you um, you studied history. What what was your like focus? Was it American history around that time period, or did you end up studying something completely separately? Um, it was actually just more general. I mean, my my focus is really uh, typically the nineteenth uh, to nineteenth century to modern day, so more modern history. But there was a little bit of um, uh, kind of religious history, more about like the Middle East. Um, I I also studied some things around uh, a lot of the stuff around the Holy Land, just because there was a lot of uh, you know, emerging uh, architectural evidence that was coming out. And so that was something that I was really interested in at the time. But a lot more of my focus is more modern. Uh, and that kind of lined up really appropriately with my political science background, which kind of coincided with the same time period. I think that it's really interesting to have come to a love of sort of studying the modern society of via this sort of, as you said, rabbit hole to history. Because as you said, there's something in the Titanic for everyone and everyone comes to the ship and their 
own way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the first time you saw it was a Magic Treehouse book. What's been your sort of, I mean, obviously you mentioned you studied more of like modern. Well, how'd that end up evolving for you, especially as you started studying more of like just more stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, I, one of the things that I really enjoyed growing up was actually building model ships, model planes, uh, just things like that. And so for me, I definitely had a, uh, I, I dove a little bit more into the technical aspect of, of things like the naval architecture, the building of the ship, the, you know, the mechanics of how the sinking occurred, why it occurred that way. Uh, and then, you know, of course, that kind of leads into a discussion about, you know, the wreck itself and the condition of the wreck, how, you know, why it's, you know, the stern's totally blown up, but the, the you know, the bow of the ship is in relatively good shape, comparatively speaking. I mean, so I, I definitely appreciated that aspect, but... Um, like you said, I think that the human aspect is really compelling because the Titanic, I feel, is one of those disasters and one of those things you read about in history that you can't help but ask yourself, what would I have done if I was there that day? You know, what class would I have been in? What, you know, my background would have been, you know, can I identify with any particular passengers on that voyage that maybe their life experience resembles more of my own? And, you know, you can't help but kind of transplant yourself uh, into history in that sense. And I feel like that that's very, it's very compelling and it makes it very personal in a way, even though you may not have a direct connection to anybody on the ship, you feel like you understand on some level what that must have felt like for somebody going through that. Right. Because, you know, I, I'm about 99.99% sure that I have no personal connection mm-hmm. um, to the ship outside of an interest in it. So, you know, I can't say that it's, oh, I have a great something or mm-hmm. other. Or what was it Izuma said in the Emperor's New Groups? Like my wife's cousin's brother, Stephanie's great aunt or something. Like, yeah. I, I don't have <laughs> that. But I, it is the very human element because, like you said, it, you wonder what you would do in such... A, a disaster where you have under three hours to literally make life or death decisions mm-hmm. when, you know, mere minutes before you could have been asleep or, you know, very drunk in the smoking lounge, yep. <laughs> not in a place to start making critical, critical decisions. Yeah. And, and I feel like the disaster too, because it took almost three hours for the ship to sink, it's kind of this slow burn. It's not like, you know, a plane's crashing that you only have, you know, a minute or so to react. Oh, it's right. not this, you know, last minute, you know, what are you going to do gut instinct? It's very much people are having to kind of process it on some level before they decide to act. And I feel like that makes people feel a little more at ease. Like, okay, what would have my line of thinking been? Because right. it's not just what I'm reacting. It's me actually thinking through it. It's, it's not like, was it the Lusitania that was torpedo mm-hmm. and went down in 18 minutes? Or You yep. have absolutely... There is no time for thinking. You're, the time for thinking is, well, it's about to be real cold down there. Like, yep. that is the thought. Exactly. And I think I saw a, a thread in the subreddit a while ago that was like, okay, if you were on the Titanic, how would you get out? Mm-hmm. And some people were just like, I don't know, head for the stern, hope for the best. But <laughs> others had what I would consider to be tactical plans based on their <laughs> class based on whether they were married. But it's really interesting because people get so into it. Mm-hmm. I think I personally am a little too bleak about it. I'm like, well, I'm mixed race, which means I'd definitely be in third class. I'm, yeah. But So I guess it's not as fun for me to speculate. No, I mean, I, I have the same thoughts too. I mean, because, uh, for example, my background is that I'm Hispanic and Asian. Like, that's that's my mix. And uh, so same thing. Like, def- I definitely would not have been in first or second class. And, and I mean, it almost makes me think of like, my great-grandfather, my great-grandmother, who were alive at the time, and I'm like, if they were traveling on the ship, like, yep, they probably would have been in third class. They probably would have been 
discriminated against. They wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to read the signs to get up to the boat deck. Yep. Like, all kinds of factors. And I'm like, I would probably not have been able to fare that much better. There, There is a, like, three-second clip in the Cameron film where they zoom in on an Indian couple, uh, family during mm-hmm. the sinking. And you hear the, the, the wife saying, yalla, yalla, hurry, hurry. I'm like, yeah, that would have... That's my grandparents and probably my dad because I think they had a kid with them. And I, and I see that and and it's I only recently saw some of the deleted scenes out of the out of the film. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen the film a couple of times, but um, yeah, it, it's those little moments where you're seeing the people, like especially like you know the the third class Irish woman who you know she's telling her young kids like you know don't worry they're gonna put the first and second class people on the bus and then they're gonna come get us. Like yeah. she knows what's gonna happen. But, you know, it, it's it's that, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to help all these people. Like, why did any of them have to endure that? Especially because of circumstances like their background, their language, yeah. whatever, out of their control. It's it's really, it's very sad. But, again, it's, it's a way that people are able to connect with mm-hmm. the disaster as a whole, I think. And I think that's how that human element comes around even to people who don't have a personal connection. Mm-hmm. Because maybe my family could have been in that situation and we could have lost a brother or a sister or an aunt. Mm-hmm. Oh, somebody. Yeah, I think recently, I don't know if this was on the subreddit, but there was, I remember seeing a map recently that showed a world map of just, you know, these are the countries that, you know, had people of that nationality or that were from oh, that cool. country that were affected by it. And it was, I was surprised because the same thing. I thought, oh, this is a very white person. This is a very European thing, a uh, very yeah. European tragedy. And I know that even, you know, in the way that the Titanic disaster has been looked at, I mean, I've heard commentary from different people of, of color that have said, yeah, you know, it's for a long time, it's really been understood or, or kind of interpreted as this is a white man's tragedy, but it's really right. not. You know, the story is like everything in life, a lot more complicated and a lot more interesting as a result. Yeah, I, um, I'm i reading the um, Down with the Old Canoe, uh, Cultural History of the Titanic Disaster mm-hmm. by Stephen Beale, which... Um, is is interesting because it's really not so much about the disaster itself. It, it, it's around the world at the time and how it responded to the disaster. Mm-hmm. How, say, you know, um, the women's suffragette movement tried to, you know, write about the disaster to bolster their causes, whereas more conservative people were writing about it to try to say, see, this is what happens when you don't do traditional value things. Mm-hmm. It was just everyone trying to get their own angle in there and because again you know it was 1912 it wasn't now when we have a lot of representation a lot more diversity Mm -hmm. uh they didn't really ask a lot of not white men anything yeah yeah (laughs) so that narrative was very much on the Yeah, definitely not. About. Definitely not talked about because again, they're not asking the questions to the people that could give that right. alternative viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. Right, and I'm pretty sure they weren't thinking, "Oh, let's bring in a translator to get this person's story." They're just like, "Hmm, shame they don't speak English." Next, <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that I remember even while I was doing my my degree in history that when you're when you're trying to look at past events and trying to come up with new interpretations or, or kind of draw new conclusions out of it. That's something that they always told us about. They said the the temptation to bring in your, you know, your personal modern sensibilities and morality and perspectives and understanding about things, it's really hard to, to detach yourself sufficiently when looking at those past events because, like you said, it's really like, well, I wouldn't have discriminated back then because <laughs> right. I know better. But it's like, yeah, well, if I would have lived back then. I probably would have, to some degree, been a product of my time. And I probably would right. have shared some of those 
perspectives and beliefs and right. attitudes. So it's really it's really tough because I feel like there's some dis- self-discovery that occurs when we have that conversation within ourselves yeah. of what kind of person am I? Like, you know, what are my values and, you know, how much am I going to allow society to either change or manipulate those? And then which ones do I feel are so core to myself that they wouldn't right. change regardless of what time I lived and whether I was in the Titanic at that time or not? It's, it's really, it's again, it's a very interesting kind of penetrating self-discovery uh, question. It really is because then you also have to go think about, and I'm sure you probably think about this a lot more than I do, like if I lived in whatever time period, how would the values of the time have shaped my experience so differently than now? Because mm-hmm. again, you know, we're both mixed race and what have you. That was just not super, that wasn't very good back yeah. then. I mean, it depends on how much they thought of me as a person mm-hmm. and that would really affect how you react, because I think we've all had that moment where we look back and we have that shameful fear feeling of, oh man, I had such bystander syndrome, I really wish I'd done something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if if somebody doesn't have that experience, that means that they've either been completely sheltered or, you know, they've, you know, been oblivious to, to that right. experience and the fact that they could have been doing something differently. You're right. Yeah. Or else when you realize you did something that maybe you would never do now, but back when you were less informed... Mm-hmm. you were fine with because you just didn't, you know, and no one wants to rock the, especially when you're young, you don't want to rock the bow and you're in high school and you're very much dependent on every single adult around you. Rocking the boat is a much harder thing to do than when you are a grown up with a job. Mm-hmm. And when you feel more confident and kind of at ease with the person you've become when you're young, you're looking for the approval of other people. You're, you're very self-conscious yeah. of that. And absolutely, absolutely right. So I think that, you know, there was a lot of criticism after the disaster about certain people sort of like saving themselves and people mm. being and people being very ridiculed and insulted, especially men, mm-hmm. for just the crime of surviving and especially oh, some yeah. of the crew, which yeah. was bonkers because I'm sorry, do you think most of those passengers could row a boat? Because I don't, I can't row a boat and I'm a modern woman. Mm-hmm. I could figure it out, I'm sure. But if I'm also in a boat with a bunch of people who are panicking and a sinking ship, yep. I don't know that I'm the best oarsman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've always, I, I remember when I was younger, it made more sense. It, it, again, I just kind of accepted, you know, the whole like, oh, you know, well, you know, women and children first, clearly. And I mean, yeah, they're, you know, people can have their perspectives on that, but you're right. It's, you know, when you're in a disaster, one, you know, everybody is technically looking out for themselves. Yes, you can have expressions of morality and save, helping save other people instead of yourself. Like, you know, that's very noble and stuff. But uh, I mean, for example, the whole, you know, J. Bruce Ismay, you know, surviving. I'm like, you know, first of all, he was on that front of the part of the ship. You know, there was nobody else on the boat deck that could have filled that lifeboat anyway, for example. Yeah. And so, yeah, like he is one of those people that, at least from my understanding, you know, he was very vilified for that. And I'm like, yes, very. I get the whole, you own the ship thing, but at the same time, you know, what, what do you expect him to do? Like, there's nobody else to go on this boat. Well, you know, I'm not going to die for nothing. I'm going to get in kind of thing. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, if you haven't read, say, not just a night to remember, if you haven't read any nonfiction Titanic account, it's really hard to overstate how for like the first hour-ish or so, no one, well, maybe like 45 minutes, but the ship wasn't taking on water as rapidly. So while the deck was slanted, 
It wasn't slanted any more than it had or hadn't been during a normal, like, rocking around in the ocean. So people mm. just didn't know. Like, Yeah, they didn't realize the gravity for sure. For right. Sure. Like, if it was Lusitania level, it's like, you, that, that's a visual immediate emergency. But this wasn't a visual immediate emergency. So, I mean, now in hindsight, we're like, you know, better safe than sorry. Rush everyone onto the decks. Make sure they're on the lifeboats. But at the time, they were kind of like... I mean, like, what's happening? I, it's cold out there. It's two in the morning. Or I'm sorry, it was like midnight. I don't want to go out there. There was an iceberg. I don't know if you know how cold those are, but there is one. But it's like, I could see where people were just like not having it. And then by the time they started convincing like those, like that one lifeboat that had 12 people, it's like oh. that was 12 people that they had to pull out of a dining room. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. Even if I were first class, I don't know that I'd be in that first boat. <laughs> Well, I mean, and, and it's, and, and the, I mean, and you think about it, the alternative of I could stay on this warm ship that I know is humongous, it's solid, it doesn't feel like I'm in any danger. Like you said, the deck's not really uh, listing. There, there's it's got no those slant. watertight doors. Exactly. Like, I, I feel like I'm in a safe place. Why would I go into the, the cold, frigid night, you know, on this rinky little boat that is going to probably, you know, founder if I put too many people in it? Like, wow, like, it just feels like such a weird choice for anybody to willingly yeah. want to make, especially, like you said, early on during the sinking. And also at the time, the the officers and crew didn't all know what was going on. And the ones that did were told to like, keep calm, don't freak anyone out. So they were, they were not going around like banging doors and shaking people going, you need to get it together. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the atmosphere because they didn't want to cause panic. And so it's really easy to criticize and look back at all that. But when you realize that almost half of the time of the sinking was spent going, eh, <laughs> it kind of gives you a better perspective as to why it shook the way it did. It's really tragic, but... And it's interesting to me, too, because I think of the... I mean, I've, I've read about plenty of other maritime disasters, um, you know, like... And, and I know that they occurred, you know, in the 1800s, late 1890s. Mm-hmm. Like, I know... So I know that people at least know that these disasters can occur. But I, I almost... One question that I've always had, which I don't know that there's necessarily a good answer for, but I think, is there... You know, what was the, oh, this is turning out like the Titanic during that time period, you know, because we look back at the Titanic as that kind of, you know, magnitude of a disaster. But, you know, I would love to know if anybody at the time was asking themselves, oh my gosh, like, you know, could this be like, you know, the the Northeastern, the the ship that sank or the Atlantic or whatever? Like, I wonder if any of them had any of those thoughts of, oh man, this is actually kind of serious or not, like... Before the Titanic, what would have been, or do you know what would have been sort of the 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 gold standard? That's not the word that I want because that makes it sounds really good. But like, what was the mark of at the like what people would compare it to at the time? Or like, oh gosh, is this the next insert that disaster? Would it have been another passenger liner, or was it? Good question. Um, I mean, I know that. I, I know that there were quite a few, you know, since the Titanic, you know, I got, you got the Andrea Doria, uh, you, there was a very famous, uh, you know, German troop ship during World War II that had, I think it was called the Wilhelm Gustav, um, that had, you know, thousands and thousands of people, even more than the Titanic. I believe that the, the one that comes to mind is the SS Atlantic, um, which ran aground, I think, off Newfoundland, um, and now it had familiar. a horrendous loss of life, and... That was kind of, I don't want to say it was a slow burn uh, sinking, but 
Um, you know, the, it was a wooden hulled ship and, and it hit the rocks and, but it was like this crazy rescue where people were like throwing, uh, you know, lines from the rocks and trying to wow. kind of pull people across it. And most people died. They, they couldn't survive. Oh, and it was in the middle of a storm. Like it was some wacky, Oof, crazy. Yeah. It was ridiculous. What, um, what year was that? Let me see. It was on the, oh, where are you? I know I read about it just the other day. Uh, oh, I never have any information that's useful handy. Oh, no, you're good. I'm, I'm Googling it. Um, <laughs> let's see. This was the 18, 1873. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I guess maybe maybe it wouldn't have been kind of on the minds of people at the time. I don't know. Maybe that's, the, maybe that's what happened. Would that have been a White Star Line ship? It actually was, was a White Star Line ship. I was going to say, it lands in the IC thing. Mm-hmm. What happened after the Atlantic? Because I know after the Titanic, there was no way, because of the, all the celebrities that went down, there was no way to kind of like shush, shush, shush that. Did the Atlantic make the same sort of impact when it wrecked, or was it just because of the time it wasn't as easy to transmit information? Was it a little bit more obscure? Um, I don't, I think it was widely publicized. Like you said, you know, they didn't have wireless at the time, so it definitely wouldn't have been something that was advertised, you know, quickly, uh, nothing resembling like the, the news cycle that we have today. But, um, I don't, from what I understand, I don't believe that there were any, you know, board of trade regulations that were updated for more lifeboats or for, you know, you know, ship construction or procedures. I don't know that there really was anything like that that happened as a result of the Atlantic. Um, maybe there was another disaster in the interim. But uh, it, I don't believe the Atlantic was the one that, you know, caused any kind of change. Uh, at least another until disaster Atlantic. in the interim does not sound like progress. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, especially I mean, it may have been on the minds of maybe White Star Line people because obviously that was a yeah. very uh, you know losing you know one of your largest ships in a disaster is it's not a good look no matter what. But um, no. Yeah, I don't believe that it caused any kind of uh, change like the Titanic. The Titanic, I feel like, stands very has an outsized importance. Otherwise, like somebody mentioned, you know, if it wasn't for the disaster being as sensational as it was, first you know maiden voyage, such a great loss of life, um, you know, just all the different ingredients, um, you know, the Olympic class would have just been another class of passenger liner. There yeah, have been and I think someone also crazy. even pointed out that Olympic wouldn't have been the standout for her career because she was the only one to have what I would consider a quote-unquote natural retirement. I mean, she was scrapped, which isn't normal, but it was... Yeah, but she didn't sink, like the Britannic. It, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I find really interesting too, is that it's hard to emphasize that as well, is that at that time, Titanic wasn't a big deal until it was. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it was, I think it was a little bit more important than when a different kind of airplane comes out. Like when a new airline airplane is released, we're not like, oh my God, it's the 838. I have to go on it. Is that mm-hmm. a real plane? I, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe an maybe? Airbus. I, I don't know. There's an A380. There's a, it's a huge uh-oh. one. There we go. But um, I think the Titanic was interesting to some people in that they were just like, oh, it's the first time I get to go on this ship and it's supposed to be really luxurious. But for many people, it was like, well, I need to go to New York anyway and I can afford to go on this ship, which seems better than that other ship. So I'm going to go on this one. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand, the Olympic actually had a lot of fanfare, uh, you know, especially when it got launched because it was the largest ship at the time. And uh, I mean, that's why we have so few photographs and recordings. Uh, I think there's only one partial recording of the Titanic's launch. There's very few pictures because, again, Olympic stole the limelight. Its hull was painted uh, a white or a light gray color for the launch, unlike the Titanic or the Britannic. 
uh, which were just I don't kind even of think the Britannic got any fanfare. I think they just blew yeah. a kazoo in that one when it went loose. <laughs> just like really rude to Britannic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like you're right. The you know the, there wasn't a lot of fanfare around the Titanic because it was the second. It was the second one. Um, yeah, they were they were gearing up for Olympic. It's like I get it. It's you know. I think I tried to explain to somebody who wasn't a Titanic fan that it would be like the first week of Disney World opening, you know, when all the celebrities were there and Walt himself and all the characters, it was brand new. If there had been an earthquake and that whole thing had fallen off the side of the planet, Mm -hmm. just right into the ocean, there should have been some people who served, and it took three hours to go. There would have been some people who survived, but there would have been an incredible loss of life they would have covered it because it was like, oh my gosh, Walt Disney and a bunch of other celebrities, you know, mm-hmm. were killed in that. And that would be why it was important. But if it happened like like the um, Six Flags in New Orleans, mm. when the hurricane came in, they might have just been like, hmm, like Loki. Hmm. Yes. Very sad. Anyway. <laughs> Personal Absolutely. theory. No, no. It, no I, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's just something where... Uh, you, you said it great, you know, it's, it wasn't important until, I'm sorry, what, how did you phrase it? You said, I think I said it wasn't important until it was. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's it just, you know, this, the Titanic was not opening night and, and, uh, I mean, I know that the, there was a, a coal strike that was going on at the time. And so a lot of people were rebooked onto Titanic that may not have necessarily booked originally onto it, um, because they moved a lot of the coal from the other ships onto the Titanic and such. I mean, it's, uh. Yeah, for a lot of people, you know, that wasn't their intention to get on there. I was reading uh, that the first class ticket on the Titanic would have cost something like 70000 U.S. dollars today. Something crazy. Yeah, and it's and it's wild because, I mean, I balk at even just like, why am I going to get a business class ticket if I can just get on the same plane flying coach and, you know, I'm just not sipping champagne on my way there. It's it's Oh, I can't like, even afford it, business class, but I get it. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, I mean, I, not that I do either, but it's just, it's it, for me, it just seems so... Uh, incomparable. I, that's a frame of. That's something that I don't have a frame of reference to because there's no, you know, that the tiers between, you know, when it comes to travel is just not at all the same. The only thing I can think of is one like this is going to sound like it has nothing to do with that, but I promise that it does. I was watching many years ago. I used to really. I still do like the reality TV show Rock of Love with Brett Michaels. Mm. I don't really watch a lot of reality TV. So that was the first time I'd seen like a quote unquote rock star suite in a Las Vegas hotel. And I remember looking it up just because I was curious because it's, you know, two floors, how many bedrooms has a bloody bowling alley in it. I was like, this is not for normal people. So I looked it up and it was something like, I don't know, depending on on or off season, anywhere between like seven and 20 grand a night. And I'm just like, this is something that wow. is not even in my ball. Like, this would never even be within the realm of possibility. Mm. And that's how I feel about a first-class ticket on Titanic. Just wild. Uh, just the, the discrepancy between the different experiences that people had on the ship is just nuts. I, I, re- I watched a... Uh, there's an interesting um, YouTube channel. What was it called? It, I think it was something about food history or dining through history or something. Uh, and during the month of April, the host, he actually was recreating some of the meals that were create, that were served on Titanic. Uh, and some of them were just super fancy. I mean, they had, you know, all kinds of different spirits. The first class meal had 11 courses. Um, I mean, and but I mean, it was interesting because even, uh, even the third class, you know, saloon, what it would, you know, serve is just, you know, this mutton soup. 
uh, he said, you know, a lot of these ingredients, like this is actually very, very good. And especially like for today's standards, not even counting how nice it would have been for somebody back then, you know, in a third class uh, accommodation. So it's just, it, it's it's wild for me to think about not just the the wild discrepancy between classes, but also how, you know, the Titanic really was meant to be the last word in luxury. And it shows for even just, you know, like they said, second class was comparable to what first class would have been on other ships. Um, and, and I mean, for, and for some of these people, this may have actually been their first or perhaps even only opportunity that they ever had that kind of treatment yeah. um, as well, especially if you're from, you know, a non-European country or Eastern European country, or, you know, just, it, it's, it's so wild. Like you said, you know, these people are, are the ones that are always having to do the serving for the people that are much richer than them and for them to have that experience and for it to be so different. I mean, just how and none of the bed sheets had ever been slept in and none of the china had been used i mean like this was very much you know it felt like a premium experience i feel like no matter where you were on the ship unless perhaps you were like a stoker or something sure uh, but you I mean, were working on the ship yeah, but, <laughs> but even then i mean i i saw a video the other day that was talking about the engineering spaces and they said you know one of the interesting things is that like the fireman's saloon uh you know that was deep in the bowels of the ship because they're not going to go up to the to the different lounges to mix with the passengers right. But you know that you know they had their own water fountain and things like that, and 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 one person commented uh, because they were talking about the the role that Thomas Andrews, the mm-hmm. you know the chief architect of the ship or the chief builder of the ship, had. And they said you know this may have been the small mercy given you know to that may have been pushed on by somebody like Andrews because yeah. that's not a thing that you would normally see you know as a consideration for these people that are typically in the underbelly of the vessel. And I think it's equally sad, too, when you think about the fact that the White Star Line made most of its money off, you know, third class passengers and then second class passengers, first class passengers, because when I first heard that, I thought that was ridiculous, just considering the price tag. Yeah, yeah. But then you think about all the luxuries they had. And again, 11 courses, um, how many ingredients go into that dish and how many different cocktails there were and how many different pastry chefs and this kind of person and that kind of a person. And there was someone whose job it was to full-time care for the ice cream, you know, how much money goes into building it and then running it in that uber luxurious, hyper attentive way. Yeah, it's, I think you're right that it definitely was not their moneymaker. I mean, it's like you said, they have. Uh, I mean, E.J. Smith was considered, you know, the, you know, a favorite, you know, captain that a lot of rich people love to go, you know, on the ships. The millionaire yeah. exactly, yeah, exactly. That that was the right term, and and just that idea that that reputational word of mouth, um, you know, that was you know worth its weight in gold for White Star Line, especially because they weren't chasing the blue ribbon. They weren't trying to compete, you know, with Cunard directly in terms of speed. They were trying to instead you know, cater to the, to the, you know, luxury demographic uh, yeah, a lot they more. They were carving so. their own niche. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so I feel like that, you know, that reputational, uh, you know, focus definitely was the, uh, was, you know, that was really where the money was to be made because that would increase uh, the prestige of White Star. That, that was really kind of a long play, uh, a long-term play for White Star because you're not going to have, I, I can't imagine you'd have a lot of third-class people being like, hey, I just got to, you know, cross on the Titanic. Uh, hey, you need when you come over, you need to make sure you book on this ship or book with White Star. I, I, I mean, maybe they did talk to their family members, but you know, if they're traveling with a lot of their family as it is to have that new start, they're not going to be making repeated right. crossings like the first class or second class. This reminds me a bit of the Fire Festival in a way. I don't know if you watch. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I don't know if you oh watch yeah. 
I've I haven't seen it, but I've I've watched oh enough God. pieces and I've read enough about it to be like, yeah, that was basically a land version of the Titanic. Oh my God. Yeah, I was like maybe not. <laughs> the scandal exactly but you know they used celebrity to hype it up and they were talking about how luxurious it was and private villas and cabanas and pools and this and that it was very hyping up the luxury to get people in and again you know there wasn't just super rich people going there were people going who were draining their savings because it was supposed to be the experience of a lifetime and i mean this isn't comparable to titanic and people who are like i have to leave behind my homeland and i'm about to die in an ocean this is no one died at firefest i don't think yeah i don't believe anybody did but no but it 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 reminds me of using of how powerful celebrity is how powerful that illusion of prestige is because people were draining their savings account not just to go but to buy the private cabanas and these villas because they wanted to live like celebrities and models for for a weekend and and have that you know bottle pop in time that was Uh what they were sold and it's what really hooked them in yeah, that it's it's you know it's these these people that were in first class were very much the influencers of their day. You know, they were the ones that not just determined the the fate of of economies of scale, but also of the you know reputation of of businesses and who these you know big monopolies were going to be formed around. I mean, it's they absolutely you know they they use not just their colossal wealth, but also just their their word to be able to yeah. to drive the the market forces. Yeah, their status because it was it was like you said you know the the big players of the industry, but it's also as you said the influencers. There were there was I think a model on there was a movie star on there. There was an author. There was you know Taft's aide Archie Butt. There was mm-hmm. the designer Lady Duff Gordon. These are people who were controlling the like what what do you wear? What mm-hmm. do you drink? What do you eat? Where do you invest? They controlled everything and they were on that chip. Mm-hmm. Because they were told that it was where you needed to be. It was the place to be. Yep. And they wouldn't settle for anything less. They wouldn't settle for, you know, anything, any... If they could get the absolute best of the best, then the Titanic represented that, and that's why they were going to find themselves on the ship, no matter what. Thinking of taking for granted, I want to ask your opinion on... Because everyone has a different opinion. I know I have my own. What is your opinion on the wreck today and what we should be doing with it? Ooh, good question. I mean, although this, I mean, I've, I've read about, for example, you know, Dr. Ballard's, you know, let's paint the ship in anti-fouling paint and keep it preserved and all this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of really I interesting didn't know ideas. that was a thing that was suggested. Is that even, I'm going to, I'm going to be quiet. I don't even, that sounds insane. What? Oh no, go for it. Go for it. That, how do you paint underwater? So it's possible because um, for, especially for a lot of really large ships, like those super tankers and the cargo carriers. You can't exactly dry dock those ships to be able to, you know, scrape off the barnacles and the marine growth and then put new anti-fouling paint. nothing left. Exactly. Um, you, you, first, there's a lot of times not a dry dock available of sufficient size to do it. Um, but also, it's just a dry dock time is very expensive. So they try to, you know, make it make ships come in and out as fast as they could. There are There is a machinery that allows you to be able to paint while it's still underwater. The, the formula of the paint allows you to do that. Uh, the actual, you know, scraping of the of the you know marine life off of it, it's it's very possible. And in theory, uh, you know, Dr. Ballard did have that proposal. He, he floated it a couple of years ago, um, and and he said, you know, if you look at the anti-fouling paint on the wreck, it's actually pretty clear of these rusticles, which is true. Um, but again, the problem is, you still got salt water on all sides of the wreck, including the inside. So even if you paint the outside, you know, it's, 
you know, it's, it's like painting over mold on a wall. You haven't really, you know, remediated the issue. That was going to be my question with that, because it's not just spraying the exterior for protection before it goes on its... It's completely submerged on every mm -hmm. single side. I mean, we all know this. It's at the bottom of the freaking Atlantic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You'd have to essentially do the equivalent of dipping it in epoxy with this paint. Correct, yeah. I mean, one, one thing that... I, I see I, one other supporting idea that kind of corroborates his, his theory... Uh, is that, I, which I'm not necessarily agreeing with, is that um, if you look at the two sides of the ship, they, I think it was back in 2012, they did a, a photographic survey of the wreck on both sides so you could see it in detail. Mm -hmm. And the starboard side actually has a lot more rusticles and a lot more deterioration than the port side. Uh, and if you actually look at the port side, you can actually still see the difference between the white paint and the black paint and the red antifouling paint. Um, you can't really see it quite as well on the starboard side. And the reason for that is because the currents that blow over the wreck, they actually come from the starboard side. So you've got a lot more water friction, a lot more uh, stuff in the water that's blowing across. And so if you look, for example, at the uh, starboard boat deck, it's collapsed a lot more on the starboard side, but on the port side, it's actually still upright. And it's because the, the currents and that, uh, you know, the, the forces of the fluid on the wreck. Um, so, so there is something to be said for that some parts of the wreck are not in as bad of shape, and he suggested that the the penetration of water into the deck, in, inside of the decks of the ship, it's really not as much. You know, there's not a lot of circulation going on there as it is, you know, in the parts that are more open, like maybe the promenade deck, or, you know, the boat deck, or, you know, the forecastle. Um, sure. So... He, he floated this idea. I don't know that it's really feasible. Um, his idea is that he wants to preserve the deck or the ship for as long as possible. But, you know, I feel like there's something to be said for also leaving the wreck as it is. Um, because it's, you know, it's eroding over time. And yes, you know, of course we would love to see future generations appreciating the Titanic in preserved form. But, you know, all things come to an end. Um, and, and we, and it just puts an onus on, you know, people that are interested in history and that want to carry these stories forward and keep writing about them and, and studying them to appreciate what we have, but then also to keep talking about it even after it's gone, because all the survivors are now gone. They, they've now all been dead for a couple of years, but that doesn't mean we still can't talk about them. We still can't, you know, talk to their descendants. We can't talk to, yeah. uh, we can't see the artifacts that represent, you know, that point in time. So. And I mean, I, 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 I agree with that's, that's kind of how I feel about things. Like on the one hand, would I personally love to be able to dive down to Titanic? Yes. Can I afford it? No. And I feel like one of the things that happened was, wasn't it a Russian company that was slash is doing dives down? Um, I think I saw somewhere that part of the problem is that they're landing on the bow. So every time you land, you're, you're basically cutting into the ship, which is going to cause it to rust. And, yep. you know, it's, it's a metal ship and a wood ship. It's metal and wood, two things that are not exactly fond of long periods in water, mm -hmm. especially salt water with a lot of minerals. And then you have continual landing on what is now one of the world's most fragile sur um, surfaces. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, it's like you want people to keep going. You want to get pictures as you get new technology. You want to get video. You want to get this. You want to get that. But I'm sort of of that feeling for you where it's like all good things come to an end. And it's almost, it's not to say that it's like plumbing an empty grave at this point, but it sort of feels like it's, it's getting to the point where we are doing more harm 
than good to the overall condition of the ship. So it might be time to do like the final go, Mm -hmm. get everything we can, try to get what we need and say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, um, I mean, I, I still remember seeing the comparison pictures between, you know, when it was first discovered in 85 and the dives in 86 and then 90 and 91 and 96, just the, the progression of time. And, and like you said, you know, the, the mere submersibles, there is a pair mm-hmm. of submersibles from a, you know, from a Russian uh, oceanographic vessel. Yeah. You know, that they landed on the landing uh, next to the captain's quarters. And now that whole area has now collapsed. You know, they landed yep. uh, on they the, land on top of the captain's quarters. Yeah, they did. Point? They did. And that like, whole, and that whole wall heck? has collapsed. Yeah. And then like, same, I'm sorry, what yeah. the, f- what the fucking title? The lion, the witch, and audacity of that bitch. Like, yeah. what are you doing? And the same thing for the um, for the areas around, like the first class staircase. Because again, that's that's the area that allows you to penetrate the farthest into the wreck within a yeah. little ROV or whatever. But the sure. same thing, you know, that whole area has collapsed, and you can actually look at the images, and you can see, okay, you know, this is clearly a result of human activity. Yeah. Um, you know, the deterioration was going to happen eventually, but we're sure. very much accelerating it. And, yeah. you know, look, don't touch, you know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of idea. That's, that's what I advocate for because at the end of the day, it is a grave for, for, you know, thousands of people and it represents something for, you know, millions of other people. And, and we're robbing ourselves of that opportunity to look at it and study it further because mm-hmm. we can't avoid the, the temptation to touch. I mean, I think maybe it's an innate human thing that we have to, you know, we have to have a tactile connection in order to be able to connect with history, which it's true, yeah. but we also sometimes have to kind of resist that urge. Um, and it was something that Titanic, it, it gives us an example of what happens when we don't resist well, that urge. Don't. Mm-hmm. And what gives us a good example of what happens when you do leave it alone is the, um, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yes, exactly. That was instantly declared a no-touchy zone. Mm-hmm. They were like, this is a grave. This is a sacred area for the men that... You know, twenty nine men died on this on this ship. Mm-hmm. This is not a plaything. This is not a museum. This is not a zoo. Mm-hmm. This is a grave. And for on the one hand, you can kind of be like disappointing because you know I'm sure people would like to go see it. But on the other hand, I'm like, why would you? Why would you feel so entitled, like as a civilian, to go? <laughs> may- I'm, I'm, I'm not ex- including, like, you know, respectful people who actually go and document things. I'm talking about if the commercial industry was like, want to go down to the Fitz? Yeah, like, want to take a tour? Yeah. It would be like, I'm sorry, what circle of hell did you come from? Because I'd like you to go back. Uh, it's true. I mean, we don't, we don't do, you know, tour groups of, you know, the, you know, every time a plane crashes, we don't do tour groups of... I mean, well, I guess we do, of you know, the you know where the Twin Towers fell, you know. But I it, was about to say. That. I mean, like, I was like, you know, I actually do commercialized tragedy, we and do. and I mean, they're actually that that commercial commercialization of tragedy is very very sad, and I feel like the Titanic yeah. is a very good example of that. Of of you know that you know you've got the merchandising aspect of it, you've got the you know roaming tours with the artifacts, you've got the you know the cottage industry of going down, like you said, of of going down an actual submersible to go look at it. I mean, it's. There, there's a lot of aspects to it, which is, I mean, yes, research costs money, but also mm-hmm. like not at the point of, you know, kind of losing sight of, of the dignity of the people that had to live through that hell. That's yeah. just not, it's, it's, and, and also what it represents and being able to really understand it for what it is and not for, mm-hmm. you know, something that it isn't. 
And I, I feel as though if they had gone, if, if we were able and capable of going to look but not touch, like if those submersibles went down and they rotated the ship or just went directly down into that, you know, great cavern of the great staircase and went safely where you could go so that you don't bump something. And if you do mm-hmm. bump something, it's a, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that could have been feasible if people, if we were capable of looking without touching. Mm-hmm. But the big piece is enough to tell me that we are not capable of looking without touching. I, I will say I fully understand, not fully, but I kind of can see the argument of picking up saucers, plates, I think impersonal items. I would not pick up boots. Oh my gosh, yeah, clothing. not, not like no. the pairs of boots that are next to each other on the floor, which tells you that somebody actually had that their resting place there. was a body! Yeah. Right, but something like a plate, a saucer, a cu- thing, impersonal items, I kind of see the merit of, of bringing up. But the bringing up of the big piece, oh, even man. when it happened, because I don't remember exactly how old it was, but I even remember being feeling personally offended by that because it was like that had to have been destructive there was no way that piece was just lottie dying freely what did you do what did you break what did you do yeah the uh i I actually remember the first time i heard about the big piece was actually there was a discovery channel documentary called titanic or something or what Mm -hmm. it was something along those lines uh, but I remember I got the VHS set because I was like, you know, 10 right. years old and I watched it. Uh, and I remember they raised it in 96. Um, or no, they tried to race in 96. And, and then, then it fell. Right, and then it? it fell. And then they had to go like a year or two later to go get it. Um, yeah, like I remember even at the time I thought like, you know, okay, like, you know, that's cool, I guess. But then as I got older, I was like, you know, that was completely a cash grab. Like I get that seeing something in a museum makes it feel more real. Um, instead of just just a picture, a black and white picture that, like, did color exist back then, you know, mom and dad? Like, it, it's that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But, um, and I'm not going to lie, you know, there, there's a part of me that would love to go look at the big piece, but also another part of me that's like, you know, but I also know what this represents. I, I know it, it represents in many ways, you know, the, the insatiable greed of a lot of people yeah. of not wanting to, to leave it alone. I will say I'm going. I'm going to Vegas in October, and I I do plan on going to the Luxor exhibit. Good. But I think the Luxor exhibit, in my opinion, is the most controversial of them. Because mm. I mm. went to the museum in Pigeon Forge, and all the artifacts there seem to be, you know, donated or sourced, mostly ethically. ethically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say that everything was probably gotten mm-hmm. ethically. I'm pretty sure there's a few things in there where it's like, we'd rather not reveal the history of this thing. <laughs> um, but I think the Luxor is the one that has the most that were grabbed from the bottom of the ocean mm. just arbitrarily. Oh, that looks solid. That we can grab that. We can get that. We can get that with not really regard as to who it might have belonged to or what it was. Like, Yeah, almost like a trawler net where it's indiscriminate. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. leave the pocket watch alone that belonged to somebody, but, mm-hmm. you know, the fork and the knife with white Starline branding, I mean, that wasn't anyone's personal shit. Grab that. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yep. The, in, including the big piece, it's just that that seems to be the biggest collection of what I would consider to be stolen artifacts. Yeah. And I'm curious to see it in that morbid way, but also I just want to kind of look at it and then decide if it was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Be- and, and, that, and that's it? a fair point be- because you, it's really hard to be able to come up with that judgment until you've had an opportunity to have that experience personally mm-hmm. with it to say, okay, you know, was it worth it for me? Do I feel right. like I got what I, the, what this effort and what this, you know, in some ways robbery represents? Do I, do I feel like it was worth it for me? 
Yeah, and you know, maybe it, I have a feeling that it won't be. Mm. You know, I have a feeling that it won't that it won't be so compelling to see the big piece that I <laughs> collapse in tears and just lose my <laughs> mind, which I have done before. So it's not completely outside the possibility, but it's usually when I've like missed my flight by literally two seconds and mm. I've sprinted. But you know it. If, for example, it had that ability to like compel people to understand the tragedy in a way that was so earth shattering and it changed people's minds, then I would possibly say it was worth it because it would have told enough of a story to change people's minds where maybe they think, well, let's never go back down there and do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's done that. I think all it's done is make people go, ooh, look, selfie. Yeah, it's, yeah, where it's very much about either being seen with something that seems important or, you know, how can I get more of this feeling, which is go back to the wreck and collect some more. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, when we went to the museum in Pigeon Forge, I definitely had my mom take my picture on the replica of the Grand Staircase, but it was a replica of the Grand Staircase. I wasn't standing on anyone's last minutes here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's very, yeah, you're not dancing on everybody's grave at that point. No, it was yeah. fake. You know, I got a picture outside of it, which is like a like massive scale model of half of the Titanic hitting the iceberg. It's like, this isn't the real bow. We didn't drag it up from the ocean, and I'm not you know, doing a little cute pose in front of where, you know, how many thousands of people died? This is fake stuff. Yeah. That absolutely. we, this is specifically to play pretend. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's comparable to the pictures that I've seen. If they did something like that, then, or, I mean, God forbid, if we had uh, the Clive Cussler raise the Titanic scenario actually happen where the ship actually was brought back. I don't know if you've ever watched that film. <laughs> I haven't, but I it's, hear it's a it, it's riot. Free on, it's free on YouTube. You can watch it. Um, <laughs> The, the, it's like officially on YouTube. You can it's sweet. It's a, it's pretty interesting. The production value is very seventies, um, but uh, <laughs> it's it's very interesting because you know they're walking around the interior of the ship, and I'm just thinking, yeah. guys, like this is where people like literally had their last moments, or this is where they said goodbye or whatever. And, uh, and of course, you know the the movie isn't meant to be super serious. It's not going to tackle those kinds of issues. But uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, if they did something like that, it'd be comparable to somebody, you know, taking selfies at like a Holocaust memorial. I'd be like, why are you doing that? Like, people, what the heck's wrong with you? Again, that that's for me. That's what a lot of history is. It's understanding not just the meaning in events, but also connecting the physical location of where those events occurred. Because again, I can't conceptualize that. You know, five hundred years ago, somebody died at this particular place. I wasn't there. It may have looked totally different. But I know that because of that person and what they did, or because of the kind of person they were, or because of the significance of this event, it's a it's something worth remembering and learning from. And the Titanic wreck is a, is a exa- an example of that of you know this is you know this is why ships are so safe nowadays. It's because these people unfortunately had to pay that price in blood because of that. And the least that we can do is say, you know, that that requires some dignity on our part and some self-restraint on our part to learn the lesson, but to learn the appropriate lesson. Yeah. And I think so far, the only lesson that we've learned is that we're really attempting to satiate our curiosity and there's nothing wrong with curiosity. As you've said, we have a lot to learn, not just from that disaster, but many other maritime disasters, even, even Mm -hmm. though we don't do ocean travel in the same way that we used to, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, it's people, when they move to other countries, you don't usually take a ship. 
you send your belongings and you take a plane. Mm -hmm. This is not how we do things anymore, but it, it doesn't mean that we can't learn. And I think there's still a bunch we have not learned from the Titanic mm -hmm. investor. First and foremost, what we were just talking about, which is leave it the hell alone. Mm -hmm. That's the first lesson we should learn. But some of the other lessons that we needed to learn, we really just didn't. Yeah. And it's really sad. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot to be gained from being able to look at the Titanic, not just at the events, but also, like you said, you know, the wreck, about the artifact. Like, looking at them and drawing those conclusions instead of the end goal being the recovery of an artifact or to create a museum exhibit that now we can make money off of. I mean, it's, yeah, that, that's, that's one regard, because... Like I said, I, I've always really been interested in the naval architecture, the actual shipbuilding aspect of it. But, um, you know, naval military history is something I've also, you know, taken a big interest in. And, you know, war graves for, for naval military ships are treated very differently. You know, you don't collect any artifacts from those at all. I don't imagine you would. Because, again, those are rightly considered to be war graves. And so there, yeah. maybe it's just because there's more legal protection around them. Um, mm. But, I mean, it's... Uh, it's for me it's that what they're doing with the titanic with collecting so many artifacts with with carelessly and neglectfully destroying you know parts of the of the you know wreck and removing debris um it's like what you see there's actually an issue in southeast asia because a lot of the world war ii wrecks they are illegally being salvaged um and and, I mean, that happens because it's, you know, really good steel that was done before it was contaminated by the nuclear testing that we did. And it's the same thing. I mean, like, I, I remember watching an investigative report just a couple of months ago where it was off the coast of Malaysia that there were some unknown salvaging ships. They suspected they were Chinese companies um, that were just dredging in mass, you know, the remains of these, you know, World War II era cruisers, huge ships. And now there's very Stop little left there. But the thing is that they have human remains still in them and they just like throw them away. Like this is, again, it's that idea of, of you know, my short term oh my benefit for commercial sins, for the, for the sake of making money. You know, it, I, I feel like we lose something as people when we, not because the dead necessarily care, but because we lose something out of ourselves by not being able to have that dignity. I agree. I agree. And it unfortunately, it, Going to lessons that we haven't learned, you know, in 2014, the Seawall Ferry sank in South mm. Korea, which was one of the most, I'd say that was probably, this is probably the current maritime disaster might be the Seawall Ferry because it was primarily, you know, students and it happened in the digital age. So we have these record, these horrible recordings of children dying and begging for help and drowning and screaming and calling for their moms <sighs> which is i haven't i've only heard some of the stuff in news reports and i don't think they released a majority of it to the public which i'm very i'm almost glad they didn't because speaking again of the sacred things it's like those messages were meant for the people that they were meant for yep. and if they choose to share them to, to tell their story that's fine, but we shouldn't be going through and pulling electronic records to share with everyone and plastering these faces. Like, this is the face of a 13-year-old girl who perished on the Seawall Ferry. We yeah. obtained her final words from her phone company. It's like, no, those were for her mom. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Yeah. And I it's mean, like, it, we just didn't learn. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, even, uh, I've had, 
I don't want to say it's a privilege because I don't feel like it is. It, it was it was just very somber. I had the opportunity to, to actually listen to a lot of the um, recordings uh, from 9-11, the ones that were not publicly oh, wow. released because of my work in intelligence. Um, right, right. Uh, I was a counterintelligence analyst, so we, they, it was part of some of the things that they had us, you know, learn and, and do trainings on. And I can say it's the same thing. It's, you know, that was meant for very specific people. And, you know, it's when these people were in the, you know, most dangerous and extreme circumstances of their lives. And this the was their message for position. those people. Yeah. And, and, and it felt like a betrayal being able to hear that when it was meant for somebody else. Um, and I agree. It's, you know, you know, we... You know, I may not be religious, but the thing is, you respect the dead not because they deserve it or because they care, but because of how it transforms you if you don't. Right. Um, it's a reflection on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I agree. It's just, it's one of those things of that it's an opportunity for us to grow and to be able to increase our empathy with pe- for people and to understand and, and respect history and understand those experiences that people go through. And to be able to actually learn something and make something good out of something that was really horrible and tragic and destructive and and sad, um, but but yeah, when we when we step on that, unfortunately, it becomes a it becomes entertainment, and uh, and it's a betrayal of of what their experience was like for them, and we're doomed to repeat those mistakes because we're too blinded by our own desire to be entertained. Again, it, it's this idea of of almost like a human triage. Um, and, and the way that people are making that calculus is just so different. And it's, right. it's not something about us, the fact that we're able to look at it and say, okay, you know, we're, you know, wow, that's abhorrent. Why would they do that? Or, okay, I can understand that. It shows kind of the progression that, that humanity has gone since then. But another way that reminds us of, oh, you know, that's not so different. You know, the, the, the way I would think about it is the same as I would think about it today, too. Yeah, it, so. it's, it's really interesting because on the one hand, we've learned everything. And on the other hand, we've learned nothing as demonstrated by <laughs> the, the big fucking piece. Like, it went yep. down. Was that not the sign to leave it there? Yeah. If anything, that was more like Titanic noticed. It was like, give it back. And pulled it back. Yeah. And we were like, no, we're going to steal that. It's like, I... <laughs> that really didn't... Okay. I I know someone, I don't remember when it was, but somebody asked me, it's like, what do you want to do with the big piece? And I was like, bring it back. And they thought I was nuts. They really did. And I think it's because some people are of the... I promise I won't take up too much more of your time. I've been talking your ear off. No, like, no, you're totally great. But, um, totally great. It might seem like a silly answer because it's been here for now. What is it? Almost ten years or so. It's it's been here and it's also treated and preserved. It's it's been through whatever it's been through to make sure that it can last. Mm-hmm. And so it might seem like a moot point, but I feel like it go it needs to go back. I don't think it ever will, which makes me unhappy. But I feel as though that's where it needs to go because you know the stern section is rotting away. It ex. Bloated when it hit the ocean floor. I mean, mm-hmm. that is simply a fact. It's maybe possible to salvage pieces, not impersonal pieces, little ones that were naturally blown away during the crash to the ground. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't be breaking apart the already fragile ship because, like I like, I think I'm just rehashing my point because. We're expediting it, and we've now done damage that is irreversible. I, I, I don't remember what the prediction is, but I think, like, was it Cameron or Ballard? Or one of, one of the authorities was like, it might be under 50 years before there is nothing left of Titanic. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's, 
as you know, I know some people don't believe in global warming, but I'm like, you think about the changing of the temperature of the ocean as well. That's accelerating it. It's too, accelerating. Actually, yeah. Yep. It can activate new, you know, different minerals and new, it can create new bacteria, new growths, new things that will eat away at things, you know, there's a massive impact and it may only be 20 years before the ship is gone. And it's like, will we have learned the appropriate lessons by the time we have nothing left? Or is the only lesson we're going to have at the end is, ah, my grandkids won't get to see Titanic. Yeah, it's, 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 you're right. The, the, it was human choices that caused it to end up on the ocean floor and to be in the condition that it mm -hmm. is. And in many ways, the big piece, it wasn't meant to survive. No. It wasn't meant to endure away from the rest of the ship. No. And, and by, you know, raising it and then other pieces of the ship, it's, it's like you said, we're not really learning what we're supposed to be learning. We're supposed to have learned, whoa, those decisions that we made led to this. Yeah. And it's almost like by taking that piece back and reclaiming it from the ocean from essentially that grave site, you know, we're unlearning or robbing ourselves of the opportunity to learn the full lesson of what the Titanic disaster represents. And, and you know, yes, is it nice to have a tangible reminder, but maybe sometimes you do the harder right instead of the easier wrong. You know, yeah. you, you do the, the I need to leave it there and I've got to have that self-restraint because this is, it represents something bigger than my own ambition. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of, you know, you go to monuments or um, when I was nine years old, we went to Israel and there's a lot of, oh man, what is the word? Mosaics, there we go. There's a lot of mosaics mm. and ruins, which are of course, you know, individual tiles. So towards the end of many of these mosaics, there, there's loose tiles because they're hundreds and thousands of years old. There's signs everywhere saying, do not take the tiles. And inevitably, you would always see at least one person grab one. And the excuse is always the same. It's just one. Yeah, I don't understand it. It's like, what makes you special? Right. <laughs> what makes you uniquely qualified or deserving of of taking this for yourself? Right. You know, it, what, what's the story that you're going to tell your family members or your kids or whatever? Like, hey, you know, this is the only one in the world. Like, I stole it for you. <laughs> like, that kid's going to look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. Like, so you committed theft on my behalf because you care about me? <laughs> like, that doesn't, that doesn't exactly jive super well. It doesn't make paint you in a nice light. And, and, and again, it gives license to other people to feel, well, I'm entitled to it too yeah. because I'm just like them. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's one thing that I, I, I see sometimes happening now where you see stories like historic jingle dress returned to, you know, native tribe from museum. And you're getting these slow, slow, slow stories of things that were stolen beginning to make their way back. Now, it's not everything, and it's not everyone, but it's just that people are very slowly beginning to realize that the artifacts that we've taken and the souvenirs that history has claimed were not ours to have. Uh -huh. And I can only hope that maybe we start learning that, especially with things like maritime wrecks, because the ocean is not kind to anything underneath it for long. And if you want anything to endure for any period of time, you just have to leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree, hundred percent. It's, uh, I mean, it's 
yeah, I, I, I really, I feel like it'll be a very, I feel like we're, we're only going to progress as a species, as humanity, if we're able to resist these, uh, the, these impulses, these, uh, less well thought out desires to constantly, like you said, touch and, and, and manipulate mm -hmm. and take you know, and essentially, yeah. And take and, and, you know, break history in a way that, that makes it feel more real to us. Like, you know, history can be history and it needs to potentially be kept in history. Yeah. You know, there, there's something that happens even to us when we bring it into the present day because it disconnects us from the fact that yeah. there's a time span between us and that. Yeah. And that understanding that that's that sense of time, um, it, I feel like it helps to put things like the Titanic in context. Yeah. Um, and we rob ourselves of that opportunity to say, hey, these people back then, they were a lot like me, even though all this time has passed. But if we're able to see it in person, we can't tell if it's a fake or if it's the real thing. Yeah. And it dehumanizes that. It, it, it takes... It robs time of the effect that it can have it on others. And then it becomes a contest of mine's authentic, yours isn't, mine's the rarest, and yours. And then again, it's like we've lost the impact of what it, whatever the item is, whether it's mm -hmm. a fork or it, whatever the case may be. It's like, well, now it's not about you've lost the story. It's not about what it, it what it represents anymore. It's what it's worth, and. Mm -hmm. I think it, to me, that's, that's kind of what's happening with a lot of it. It's, it's become not, is it, what, what can it teach me? It's become, what is it worth? And as long as we view everything in the lens of what is it worth, we're going to continue, you know, picking apart the Titanic, the Olympic, Britannic. We're going to continue to raid all of these things. Those, they're going to try to illegally salvage those World War II ships. And I'm betting you there's been at least one illegal dive to the fifth. I can't prove it, but I'm betting you some ass has tried at least. Oh, no doubt. Just no, The fact that it's everybody knows where it is, mm -hmm. it, it's the temptation is too strong for everybody to have resisted. Exactly. And it's just like, I really wonder if, you know... We could, I, if you could ask the, the spirit of any one of those victims, I could be like, hey, Murdoch, what do you think we should do with the Titanic? I am reasonably sure that man would say, could you guys just leave it alone? Yeah. I mean, this is where, this is what we died for. Yeah. Learn the right lessons, <laughs> you motherfuckers. And, yeah, and, and there's something to be said, too, for, like, maybe there's a reason why we didn't find it for, you know, 73 years. Yeah. You know, maybe there's a reason. Granted... The technology didn't exist sure. in that interim time period for us to even find it. But again, you know, from the first theories of we're going to go down and we're going to raise it like we do a normal shipwreck to we're going to fill it with ping pong balls to, you know, <laughs> fill, it, fill it with... <laughs> I forgot some, about Vaseline. some of the more bananas prospects. <laughs> yeah, just like some of these wacky ideas or what is it? Um, using more liquid nitrogen than exists in the entire planet. <laughs> encase it into an ice block and make it float I, to the I surface. I feel like just, I remember that one too. I think there yeah, was a proposal like, for helium at one point in time, or am I making yeah, that up? I yeah, no, I think you're yeah, right. Another yeah, another non-renewable gas. All, all these wacky ideas, and, and again, I feel like that all, and the treasure hunters again from the 70s, mm. you know, like Jack Grimm and all that that were trying to find it. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you guys didn't find it because, you know, I can only imagine what the end game would have been for the for the wreck, but Gosh, yeah. um, I, I the one thing that I think about, the one... Um, Dr. Ballard said mm -hmm. in one of the uh, kind of TED Talk type things he did a couple of years ago mm -hmm. talking about the Titanic, he said, you know, the one thing that I, somebody asked him, what does one regret do you have about the expeditions? He said, I wish that I would have, during my 86 expedition, grabbed something off the ocean floor. Because by grabbing something, 
he would have been able to then claim salvage. Yes, yes. And that would have precluded RMS Titanic Inc. and all these other uh, (sighs) nations and countries from being able to say, well, we can do whatever we want. Yeah, I know. And that's, and you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you almost wish the right person had done the wrong thing. Because the reason he didn't was because he was being (laughs) respectful. Exactly. And then, and bad people, unfortunately, will end up taking advantage of Mm -hmm. that for you know, for the ends that end up hurting us all. Yeah, it's, that, it's, uh, it's, I, I think about that. I'm like, that's the one thing that I think I would change about all of this. But Yeah, I think so. Um, Just make it so that the yeah. right person did. I mean, now we know it to be the right move. But, you know, mm-hmm. you wish he'd had the foresight to be like, oh, shoot, if I don't pick this up, then some asshole's going to come down here and do it. And we're going to lose her forever. But you're right. Yeah. If someone like yeah. Ballard had been, he would have probably put a lot more. He probably would have really done the look but don't touch thing if he allowed people down there at all it would have been like if you touch the shit you are in i was gonna say hot water but that's a little bit of a pun but it's like how much trouble would you be in if you had actually <laughs> yeah. if he had been in charge well, well he wouldn't he definitely wouldn't have gotten in trouble because uh, the the wreck didn't get unesco status until what is it the late 90s Something early 2000s like i mean yeah, so, I mean, it definitely wouldn't, he wouldn't, I mean, there have been the competing claims, you know, from Britain and the U.S. Yeah. because of jurisdiction and whatever, but, I mean, international waters, and mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I kind of wish he had done it, but yeah. the, I feel like I would, I feel like he would have kept to the, you know, look, don't touch, because that's what he's advocated, but right. I feel he would have done it because of his description of when he first found the wreck in 85, when they like, when they found the boiler and all this other stuff, mm-hmm. and that it happened almost at the same time that the ship sank. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, at first they were cheering, and then they and then somebody said, hey, you know, look what time it is, and they realized it, and then he said, you know, there was just this somber feeling. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we were celebrating because we were excited, mm-hmm. but, you know, we quickly kind of got gut checked because we realized, hey, you know, this is a great... Yeah. Um, and that they knew that essentially immediately right. from finding it, which, you know, gives me a lot of hope that... You know, whether it's, you know, Dr. Ballard or other people that he's potentially inspired, that others will also look at other, you know, wreck sites and say, you know, this is something worth protecting. And, you know, that there's more to be gained by leaving it and observing than from taking and manipulating it for commercial needs. I agree. I mean, like Gordon Lightfoot was able to create that song about the Edmund Fitzgerald and that that helped teach the legacy. I learned about the ship through that song. I learned that 29 men died on that ship. It was educational, and I didn't need to go down there and stare at it. Mm-hmm. I still don't need to go down there and stare at it, because it's not my business. It just isn't. And I feel is that even though I love Titanic so much, I think part of me thinks it's not my business to go, even if I had the money or the ability. I kind of wonder, like, I'm not an explorer. I have nothing that I will gain from this that I will contribute back, except me going, oh my gosh! And Look what I did. I know, exactly. And it's like, I don't think that I, that doesn't entitle me to disturb someone's peace in that way. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just wish more people thought like me. <laughs> well, I have kept you for a really long time. Jared, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I have a feeling that if I ever need more guests, I'm going to reach back out to you because I have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm happy. I'm happy to hop wherever you can. Again, anything that helps make your podcast a success, I am thrilled to do it. I'm just happy, and it's all good. Today's interview was also so much fun. I'm getting in the habit of every interview. I'm like, guys, it was so much fun, but but it really was. Um, 
the conversation with Jared, I learned a lot. Um, thank you again to today's guest, was historian Jared Honda. Um, I cannot wait to eventually have you back on and ask uh, more about the wrecks and everything, especially, you know, with the 110th anniversary of the sinking being this year. So, uh, yeah, please feel free to get in touch. If you have any questions that you want me to ask Jared and follow up, let me know. And otherwise, I will see you next time. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C, T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!